child and you want to come forward, come on down. It's time for our children's sermon. How are you guys doing today? Good. Yeah? We have a few more over here to the right that are making their way up to the front. All right, have a seat right here. All right. All right. How are you guys doing today? Good. You doing well? Everyone doing well? Yeah. Let me tell you something about God. Do you want to know something about God? Yes. God is powerful enough to reach everybody. And you know what? He wants to do that. Now, I put some pictures somewhere in this church. Do you guys see any pictures? It's all in the front. Anybody see a picture? Okay, okay. You go get one picture. Okay? You go get a different one. You go get another one. You go get one. You go find a picture. Micah, do you want to help her get a picture? Oh, they might all be. Get one, just one. There's one more over here. All right. I did not use building and grounds approved tape to put those pictures up, so be gentle. Or Mr. Oscar will not be happy with me. Okay, perfect. All right, bring me those pictures. Did you know that God wants to reach everybody? Did you know that? Let me see that picture. Thank you. Did you know that God, thank you. Did you know that God is strong enough? Can you guys do this, like this? God is strong enough, powerful enough to reach everybody. Did you know that? For instance, did you know that God wants to reach the people of East Asia? These are people who live in East Asia. You know God wants to reach them? Did you know that people in East Asia speak a different language than you do? Yes. Did you know they wear different clothes than you wear? Did you know they look different than you? Yes. They act different than you? And God loves them, and He wants them to hear about Jesus. Did you know that God wants to reach people in Bhutan with the gospel? This man right here, God wants him to hear about Jesus. Do you think God's powerful enough to send someone to this man so he can hear about Jesus? Yes. What about these two guys? These guys live in the Middle East. They look a little different than we do, don't they? They speak a different language than us. They wear different clothes. But God loves them. And God wants to reach them with the gospel. Did you know that God wants to reach these kids right here? These kids live in Ghana. God wants them. How many of you guys have ever heard about Jesus? God wants them, just like you, to hear about Jesus and to be saved as well. Did you know that God wants this lady from India to hear about Jesus? Did you know that God's strong enough to make sure that she does hear about Jesus through missionaries like you maybe one day? And last but not least, this lady right here. She's from Moldova. God wants her to hear the gospel. God is going to continue to help people to hear the gospel. And he's going to do it through us. And the people that God reaches, they're going to be different than us. Did you know that? They're going to speak different languages. They're going to eat different foods. And I hope one day God will bring people like that to our church, different people. And they can teach us about their culture and about how Jesus moved through them. So this is what I want you to remember this morning. God is powerful enough to reach everybody on this earth, and He wants to do it through you, okay? The word of the day is Gentile. The word of the day, if you're counting today, is Gentile. All right, thank you guys. You can go back to your seats. All right, thank you. All right, the rest of us, I want to invite to open up the, the copy of God's Word and, and turn it to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. 
God is powerful enough to reach everybody, and he wants to do it. That's what we're going to talk about this morning in Acts chapter 11. The first thing we're going to talk about here is the unmistakable, undeniable movement of God. The unmistakable, undeniable movement of God. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, says this. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard about the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So, Peter had just shared the gospel in Cornelius' house in Caesarea. Remember, Cornelius is a centurion. He was also a Gentile God-fearer, but he was not a Jew. Peter went to him shares the gospel with him and his family, they're radically saved by Jesus. Peter then goes from Caesarea south to Jerusalem, which at this point is sort of the center of the Christian movement. Peter gets to Jerusalem, and he's met there with a little bit of contention. Now, what's happening here? Well, the people, the party of the circumcision, were Jewish people, Jewish believers, who believed that you had to go through the Jewish law and men had to be circumcised in order to be acceptable to God in addition to their faith in Jesus. And so Peter goes back to Jerusalem and he shares with them, hey, listen, the Gentiles are being saved. They're hearing the gospel and they're being saved. The party of the circumcision say, hey, wait, 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 wait. We're not interested in that right now. What we're interested most of all right now is that you went in this guy, this Gentile man, Cornelius' house, and you ate with him, right? So there's this huge movement of God. It's amazing. People are, are, are being saved from the Gentiles. God wants to save all people. This is radical. Peter gets back to Jerusalem, this party of the circumcision. They're contending with him because he was eating with Cornelius. And that's what's happening. Now, they're, they're contending with him about this because at this point in the first generation of the Christian church, they believed that you had to go through Judaism to receive Jesus and be saved. So you couldn't just hear the gospel, repent, and be saved. You had to, you had to convert to Judaism. You had to follow the law as it's addressed in the Old Testament. You had to be circumcised then you were prepared to receive Jesus as your Messiah and be a part of the church. So that's what they believed at this time. So God, what he's doing in this moment, he's starting to break down some traditions. In addition to that, he's defining the Christian faith. And so these guys, um, this party of the circumcision, take issue with Peter because he was eating with Cornelius with Gentiles. And so he broke with tradition. And so they're starting to look at him like, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. You're breaking tradition, and you're inviting these people into the church. They're not Jews. What in the world is going on? So Peter meets with them now, and the next part of the text, Peter's going to illustrate this movement of God. Now, when we have an issue in the church, we can go back to the Word of God. I've got my, my New Testament book of Acts right here, not the whole Bible, just the book of Acts. Um, we go back to the Word of God, If we have an issue, we look into the Word of God and we try and sort out how we're supposed to believe and practice. And so everything we believe at Fifth Street um, is founded on the Word of God. And when we have issues in our church, uh, we have conflict or we have issues of belief, 
we try to go back to the Word and we, we do our very best to make sure that the Word defines how we believe, what we believe, and how we practice our faith. Now, at this point in the church, they didn't have the New Testament, okay? They had the Old Testament, and then they had God miraculously working among the apostles and the first-generation Christians to write the New Testament that we have today. So the things that are happening now, these are our New Testament. So Peter couldn't go back to, you know, okay, look at 1 Corinthians. This is what God said. Or look at Romans. God says this. They didn't have that yet. And so the way that he's going to show the people in Jerusalem, the leaders, that God is opening the door of salvation for the Gentiles is he's going to reiterate these miraculous visions that he and Cornelius had previously from God. And that's what they're going to use as the foundation for their theology and belief that God is opening the doors for the Gentiles to be saved. So look at verse 4. Peter began to explain to them step by step. I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven. And it came to me. When I looked closely and considered it, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I said, for nothing impure or richly unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice answered from heaven a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call impure. Now this happened three times, and everything was drawn up again to heaven. So the first thing Peter does, now this is, this is just a recitation of God's vision that's recorded in the book of Acts chapter 10. So one chapter previously, uh, this actually happened to Peter. Now he's in Jerusalem standing in front of the church, telling them what happened. So he's reiterating the story of the event of how he received this vision from God. Now, when Peter uh, tells in this vision, tells uh, God that I'm not going to eat these impure, unclean animals because I don't do that. It's inappropriate for me as a Jew. The, the Jews around him would have been shaking their head like, good, yes, good, okay, Peter, that's good. But then Peter tells him, but the voice told me what God has made clean you must not call impure. And I can imagine at that moment they're starting to sit on the edge of their seats like, wait, wait. What's happening here? I don't understand. So Peter now summarizes what happens to Cornelius who's in Caesarea who's now simultaneously also receiving a message from an angel of God. So Peter moves on in the story. Verse 11. At that very moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. These six brothers, so Peter's got six Christian Jewish men who are standing with him now in Jerusalem, who went with him to Caesarea to see Cornelius. These six brothers also accompanied me. So they're testifying with Peter that this is all true. And we went into the man's house. He reported, uh, reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. So Peter emphasizes two important parts of the story. First, Peter says, essentially, I went into Cornelius' house because the Holy Spirit of God 
told me to go into Cornelius' house. So I believe that I was obeying God when I did that. And Peter's trying to also tell them, he's inferring this, God's command breaks our traditions. This is what he's telling these guys. And by the way, they're not going to like this, okay? They, they don't like this at all. And we'll see that later in the book of Acts in the way that they stand against what Peter and then later Paul do. So the first thing Peter tells them, the Holy Spirit directed me to go into um, Cornelius' house to fellowship with them. And the second thing the Holy Spirit directed him to do was to share with them the gospel message. Up to this point, it was very, very uncommon for the Jews to share the gospel message with Gentiles. So it was kind of a stretch for them to share it with the Samaritans. And Philip was sort of a unique uh, instance when he shared it with the Ethiopian eunuch. But up to this point, mostly Christianity was, was a branch or a part of Judaism. It wasn't its own system of worship and following God. And it was not shared outside of the Jewish faith. So pretty much the Jews were sharing with the Jews. Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. He's the one you need to follow. Repent and believe in Jesus. Now Peter is telling them, the Holy Spirit directed me to share this gospel with the Gentile man named Peter or Cornelius and his household. And by the way, he too can be saved if he would believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, next, Peter's going to talk about what happened inside of Cornelius' house when he shared the gospel with them. Verse 15 continues. As I began to speak, so Peter's sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit came down on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave also to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? This part of Peter's testimony is crucial. First in verse 15, he tells them, While I was sharing the gospel with them, the same gospel that we believe, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And that is an indication that they had repented and that they believed the gospel. Then he says, you remember, just like that happened to us. When did that happen? In Acts chapter uh, 2, uh, at Pentecost, the apostles are gathered in the upper room and they're praying, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. That same instance, almost identically to what happened to them, all these people gathered around Peter as he shares in Jerusalem, he's saying, that happened to Cornelius' house. The same thing. And he says, now he's going to hearken them back. He's going to take them back to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the authority on the gospel, of course. And he said, that, that reminds me of what Jesus told us about John baptizing with water, but will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So he takes them back to what is recorded for us in Acts 1, verses 4 through 8. He says, while he was with them, the he here is Jesus, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So Jesus, before he ascended to go to heaven, tells the disciples, 
I'm going to go up and ascend to be with Father, and in a few days, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, right? He said to them, verse 7, or sorry, verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So it's sort of like Jesus said this to the disciples. But the true meaning of what Jesus said didn't really take root in their hearts at that time. They received the Holy Spirit. They're sharing the gospel primarily with Jews. Here comes Peter, told by God to go to this man named Cornelius' house and to tell them the gospel. Well, Cornelius is a Gentile. Peter's confused. Then Cornelius sees the evidence of God at work in the vision to him and to Cornelius. Simultaneously, he's like, I think this is God. I'm going to listen to him. He goes into Cornelius' house, starts sharing the gospel with them, and boom, the Holy Spirit falls on them, indicating that they had repented and believed in Jesus. All of a sudden, click in Peter's mind. Wow, God wants to save the Gentiles. Then, click in Peter's mind, the words of Jesus recorded here in Acts chapter 1. We're going to receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to go to the ends of the earth with this gospel message. Not just for Jews, the ends of the earth for all people. And this is what Peter's communicating to them. That all people, Jews and Gentiles, can be saved by Jesus. Once Cornelius' house heard the gospel and believed that they received the Holy Spirit, Peter was compelled to respond with this conclusion. And this is important, verse 17. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? So Peter's conclusion in front of the most powerful people in the Christian movement at that time is, I'm not saying in the way of God, okay? God's obviously at work right now. This is a movement of God. And by the way, Jesus told us that this was going to happen. Why would I try and prevent this? We're going to go with this right now. That's what we're going to do. And in that moment, the, the Jerusalem leaders are faced with a very difficult question, a very difficult decision. Are we going to follow tradition are we going to follow what we thought we knew about God? Or are we going to follow God? Are we going to grab on to this movement? Are we going to be a part of it? What did they do? Look at verse 18. When they heard this, they became silent. So let me just tell you something about this, just a kind of a point of fact. When, when Peter would have been sharing this, what we learn from, we see it somewhere sometimes in Scripture uh, when Jesus would share uh, in the Gospels when he would preach. We, we see it in extra-biblical uh, literature. And if you were to travel to almost any other country, you would see it today. Um, when, when he was sharing, he would say something, and then little groups of people would sort of discuss that, right? Which I'm glad we don't do that because that would really throw me for a loop if you guys did that while I was preaching. But it was common, so Peter would have stood in front of the group, and he would have said something, and then like three people over here would have like got together and kibitzed about it, which is that, that's what that word means. They would have gotten, and they would have like 
blah, 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 blah. So he would have said something, and they would have blah, 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 blah. And I preach to other cultures and other languages, and, and, they, and other people, other cultures do that, right? You say something, and they all talk about it, and then you don't really go on until everyone looks up and they're smiling at you like, okay, we agree with that. You can keep going. If they don't agree with it, then you engage in dialogue about it. So Peter finishes with a story. Everybody's done sort of kibitzing and talking about it. And then verse 17 says, they all become silent. Because in that moment, everybody stops, they take a breath, and they understand what God is doing. They're like, oh, God is saving the Gentiles. They all understand it. And of course, when we understand a deep theological truth about the Lord, really silence at first is the conclusion we come to, right? And then, of course, they glorified God. Verse 18 continues, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. So they come to a conclusion together. God is saving Gentiles. All right. This is where we're going now. All people have the opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved. They respond as every believer should to a movement of God. Praise and engagement in God's mission. In Romans 10, 12 and 13, Paul explains what the church discovered in this moment. This is Paul articulating this truth. He says, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here is a, a, a basic simple truth that I want to drive home from this part of the text. God is no respecter of tradition. Now listen church, tradition's not a bad thing. But God does not move in accordance with your tradition or mine. There were two groups of people mentioned in this passage. There were the party of the circumcision, and then there were everybody else. Peter took the gospel of Cornelius. Cornelius and his household were saved. All of a sudden, we see this new door is opened up, which Jesus told us about ahead of time. And the Gentiles now have an opportunity to hear the gospel and to be saved. The circumcision party looks at this movement of God and what's going on, and their answer to that is, wait, 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 Peter, wait, did you eat dinner with those guys? Were you sitting at the same table as them? What did you eat while you were there? Did you touch them? Did you wash before you came here? Are you unclean? That, that was what they cared about. Are we that person? Or are we one who identifies the movement of God? what God is doing among us? Are we more concerned about traditions and comforts and doing things the way we always have or the way that things make us feel comfortable? Or are we more captivated by the mission of God? I want to tell you a story about a church. Um, in my past, I had an opportunity to serve and help churches through you know, when they didn't have a pastor, I would preach or I would give them, you know, a consultation about how to reach people better and be evangelistic and on mission. And it was, it's great. I love that part of my ministry. I still get to do that. Um, there was one particular church that uh, their pastor had gone, retired, and I had come in and the church sort of had gotten down to a low number of people and they wanted me to come in and tell them about, you know, 
we want to grow our church. We want to reach young families. We, you know, they were primarily senior adults, but they were surrounded by young families, and so they saw that, and they wanted to reach them. And so we started chatting, and, and uh, I started talking to them about, well, how do you want to reach young families? Well, well, we think we just get a pastor in here, and he starts preaching, and they're just going to come in. I said, okay, okay. That's prob- that usually doesn't happen, just by the way. You have to go reach people. You've got to get to know them and tell them about Jesus and invite them to church. And so I said, all right, well, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but when they come, what are they, you know, they going to do? What, what's here for them? How are you going to reach out to them? And, and we talked about musical styles and all that kind of stuff, and I just really, I, the Lord brought into my heart, I just really focused on one thing. They had a lot of breakable things around the church. Vases, glass, statues and figurines and there's a lot of stuff that if you had a young family you, you might have them until your kids are able to walk and then you won't have that stuff anymore right your anybody's kids break stuff okay so you get my point so I tell them okay so we want to reach young families so if you want to reach young families if they're going to come next Sunday what you guys got to do today when the meeting is over is you need to get rid of all this breakable stuff or at least raise it up a little bit so kids can't get a hold of it and they were just they couldn't believe that we would have to change that well, so-and-so, you know, gave us this, and, and it's got to stay there. And, and we always sing this song because, you know, that's what we love. And I said, okay, okay, I get that you love all those things, but what if the people outside there can't be reached if you keep following these traditions? What are you going to do when the kid breaks the first vase? We need to teach our kids to be respectful about the church and not to break things on purpose. But if you're going to reach young families, you're not going to have a lot of breakable stuff down where the kids can grab and throw them on the ground. They were like the rich young ruler. Do you remember the one that came to Jesus and wanted to talk about inheriting eternal life? Remember what Jesus told him? You've been following the law all your life. That's great. But there's one thing that remains. You need to sell everything you got, all your possessions, and you need to follow me because that was standing between, that was a roadblock between him and actually following Jesus. The roadblock of this church and actually growing and reaching their community were their traditions. And at the end of that meeting, they were not willing to forsake those traditions to reach their community. And they still haven't reached their community. Now, I don't think that we're a church that's necessarily plagued with a lot of traditions. Our church is real, I feel like you guys and us, I think we're real flexible and willing to make changes. And, and we're reaching young families and, and older folks and middle-aged folks. I think we're, we're pretty diverse and that's amazing. But the, the question that that we have to answer today is, are we willing to be a church that does whatever it takes to reach the community for Jesus? Will we remain faithful to the Word and forsake our traditions if and when they compel us, God compels us to do so to reach people and to be on mission for Him? And then more specifically, Are you a Christian who is ready to follow God wherever He leads? Are you a Christian who is ready to follow God wherever He leads? When you identify a movement of God in your life or somewhere in the ministries of this church and you feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to get involved in that, will your answer be yes or no, I don't think so right now. That takes me out of my comfort zone. I don't have time for that. I don't have money for that. Will you forsake your own traditions, your comforts, your preferences when they prevent you from completing God's mission 
in your life and in this church. I'm just going to be frank with you guys. We need servants in this church. We are growing. We need people to teach the Bible. We need Bible study teachers. We need people to serve in our nursery. We need leaders. We need people to hold doors. We need people to clean and and serve in fellowship and decorate. We need people in almost every single capacity in ministry in this church. We need people to serve. And so I want to compel you today in this part of the message, as Peter went to the church in Jerusalem and, and showed them the Word of God and challenged them to step away from their tradition and what they believed to be true in order to fulfill the mission of God, you too are challenged today to step away from what's comfortable for you, to step away from everyday ordinary life as you know it, and to engage in the mission of God. And if you're ready to do that today, if you feel God's Spirit moving inside of you, and you're like, I want to follow God, I want to do what God's called me to do in my life, then I want to challenge you to take out a connection card. Write your name on it. Just write on there, I want to get involved. I want to take a next step. Write it on there with your information, and we will be in contact with you. Because I feel like while we as a church aren't necessarily held back by any kind of tradition, we are held back in what we're willing to do outside of our comfort zone. Outside of what we know and do every day. Are you ready to make a sacrifice for the mission of God? The movement of God among the Gentiles didn't stop with Cornelius' family. And next we're going to look at this epic church plant. An epic, epic church plant. Look at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. So this is what's happening. You remember back in Acts chapter 6, there was a, a new deacon named Stephen. He was part of a group of men called to help serve the widows during that time. Most of those men were Greek-speaking, probably Hellenist Jews. Um, They were believers. They were the ones that stepped forward to take care of the widows so that the apostles could continue to study and preach and teach the Word of God. Acts chapter 6, a persecution breaks out among Christians. Stephen is grabbed. He's put in front of the Jewish council. Those are not believers in Jesus. And then eventually, he is stoned to death. It says at the end there of 6 and, and chapter 7 that a great persecution breaks out and all the Christians, except for the apostles, leave Jerusalem and they sort of scatter. And when they scattered, they went out around Jerusalem and they started to share the gospel. So what this text tells us is some of them went north to a city called Antioch and they began to share the gospel only with Jews at that time. So, God, though, has opened the door for the Gentiles, right? God wants Gentiles also to be saved and hear the gospel. So in Antioch, there's some Greek-speaking Christians, Jewish Christians, who start to share the gospel with Greek speakers who aren't necessarily Jews. These are Gentile, Greek-speaking people. And God starts to move. Antioch is an important city. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. A population of 300 to 500,000 people. There's probably 25 to 50,000 Jews there at that time. 
Verse 21, the Lord's hand was on them as they started to share the gospel. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So then now, in this moment, the Lord confirms his desire to save the Gentiles. What happened on a kind of a small scale in Cornelius' house in Caesarea now happens on a big scale, a grand scale, in this city, this important city called Antioch. Now, this great movement of God occurs in Antioch for two reasons. First, the Christians were obedient to share their faith. Look back at the text. What does it say they were doing? They were telling people about Jesus. And the second part, the Lord's hand was with them. He had supernaturally empowered them to experience fruit while sharing the gospel. This movement in Antioch starts to gather steam. People are getting saved. Things are starting to happen. It's big enough now, this movement in Antioch, that the church in Jerusalem hears about it. That takes us to verse 22. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. So Jerusalem, because the apostles were there, was sort of the home base for the Christian church. They hear that there's this movement among the Gentiles, the Greek-speaking Gentiles, up in Antioch. So they pick this guy Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. Barnabas is the one who built the bridge for Saul when he took him to Jerusalem the first time. He was one also uh, someone who is known as a bridge builder. He's, he's someone full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He's also going to be a Greek speaker. So he's sort of going to be the bridge builder between the Jerusalem church and the new Gentile church speak, who speak Greek up in Antioch. So they send Barnabas to check out and see what's going on. So Barnabas goes up there. He's excited about it. He's encouraging them. And he recognizes this is a genuine movement of God. God is at work in Antioch. I don't know if you've ever seen a movement of God on a, you know, a smaller scale or a bigger scale. I've seen God move in, in my circumstances a few times. When I was saved, when I was 20 at Flagler College, I was saved inside of what I believed to be a movement of God. I call it that because Many, many, many people were saved at the same time. People were sharing the gospel. New Bible studies were being formed. God was saving people. God was moving. Pastors were called out during that time. Men who I'm friends with today that are pastoring churches all around the United States. Two things were a part of that movement. People were faithfully evangelizing and sharing the gospel, and God's hand was upon them. I saw a movement of God in Jacksonville among an Iraqi friend of mine named Safa. I've told you about him before. He came, fled persecution in Iraq, came to America with a broken back, with a calling upon his life to share the gospel among Muslim people living in Jacksonville and in the United States. He's faithfully starts sharing the gospel. People start getting saved. By the time I met Safa, he had like 25 house churches in Jacksonville. And then he got on a plane, flew up to Michigan, because God told him to, 
And he starts sharing the gospel up in Michigan, plants another 20 house churches up in Michigan. Faithful sharing of the gospel, the hand of the Lord is upon him. I met an Ethiopian church planter in Jacksonville. Planted a church in Ethiopia, or sorry, in Jacksonville. But he was apostolic in nature. He, he wasn't really a pastor. He was like a modern day Paul. So he plants his church in Jacksonville. One of my really good friends is his pastor. So the Ethiopian church is meeting in my friend Manny's church. Manny's sort of helping him plant his church. And, and this guy decides, I'm going to go you know, visit some friends up in Atlanta. He's like in a subway car, shares the gospel. This guy gets saved, tells him to go tell the gospel to some friends. Before he leaves Atlanta, which he was there for a weekend, he's planted a church. He comes back, tells my friend Manny, hey, uh, we got a church up in Atlanta. I need some help, like, you know, getting things together for them. Manny's like, wait, what? You were in Atlanta for like two days. He's like, yeah, I was sharing the gospel like I always do. God moved. A bunch of people got saved. We got a church. Then he goes to, to Washington, D.C., which is like the second highest population of Ethiopian people in the world. Runs into a few people. Shares the gospel. They get saved. They share the gospel. Those people get saved. Guess what, guess what he does in Washington, D.C.? He planted a church. He comes back, tells my friend Manny, hey, guess what? Manny's like, I don't even want to know, but tell me, I want to know. We got a church up in Washington, D.C. We need to get some resources together. He's like, you were there for like three days. He's like, yeah, and I got to go back tomorrow because, you know, they want me to teach them. So now the joke with, with me and Manny is when, when he goes out of town, he's not allowed to share the gospel. I'm just kidding. He's planted dozens of churches in the United States. And you know how that happened? Same two things. Faithful to share the gospel, the hand of the Lord was upon him. Church, I want, like nothing else, to see a movement of God here. Make no mistake about it, God is moving here. I hear that from all of you. I hear your testimonies about how God's answering prayer. God's saving people. God's leading people to take steps to, to lead in this church. But I think God's got more for this church than he's done so far. I think God wants to fill this place up with people. I think God wants to give us a platform in this city. I think God wants us to leave this place and to do those two things. To go out from this place and to share the gospel. And guess what? I think that the, Lord, the hand of the Lord will be upon us. And I think that people will be saved because God is strong enough and God desires to save all people. Your friends, your relatives, your neighbors. God can do that. We can have a movement just like the one described here in the Bible. Well, let me just kind of bring everything together here in this last section of the text. Saul, later known as Paul, is going to join this movement. Look at verse 25. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, that's Barnabas. Barnabas always kind of had this, this calling to hang around Paul. It's kind of interesting. He's always getting him and bringing him and building bridges for him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples there were first called Christians at Antioch. So this is really, there's like probably two or three things that are really interesting here. First of all, Saul had been gone for about 10 years from the last time we, we saw him in Jerusalem. He was in Tarsus for about 10 years. I'm sure being discipled and teaching people the word of God. 
Barnabas goes and gets him, takes him up to Antioch, because Saul has a calling on his life to reach the Gentiles. And I don't even know if he knows that yet. But that is, we, we learn later, that's God's calling upon his life. Saul goes to Antioch. He and Barnabas, for a year, share the gospel and disciple the new believers. It just swells. It keeps growing and growing. And then finally, at the end there, it's interesting. It says there that they, they were here for the first time called Christians. That's a mixture of Greek and Latin, meaning belonging to Christ. And I, and I believe it was a slang word. It wasn't something that was like a compliment. It was like, oh, I was a Christian. It was like something you said if you didn't like somebody. They treated them there like a cult. Well, the recognizing of them as Christians shows us two things that are important. And then we're going to talk about that word and apply that to our lives, and then I'm going to be done. Antioch Gentiles recognized that this was a genuine movement they recognized that there was momentum in this society. And they also noticed that this is different than Judaism. These followers of Jesus, they're not Jews. They're something else. There's something new happening here. And then we see in verses 27 through 30, the church behaving like the church. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. And there was, and secular documentation shows that. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who live in Judea, which was one of the harshest places in the Roman world to be hit um, by, the, um, by the famine. Verse 30, they did this, sending the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. This same guy Agabus is the same one later in the book of Acts that prophesied that Paul would be arrested and hauled away to Rome. Same guy, a legitimate prophet of God. But finally in this last part, I just want to focus just for a minute on the title of Christian. Antioch was the, the first place where they used this title, Christian. The first place where they applied it to the followers of Jesus. And that word Christian means belonging to Christ. The question I have for you today is, are you a Christian? Now that sort of is a, is a trick question. I'm sure all of you would say, yes, I'm a Christian. But the, the real question, the meat of the meaning of that question is, are you a Christian by title or are you someone who belongs to Jesus? Because there's a difference between being a cultural Christian, a Christian in name only, and someone who legitimately follows Jesus. The first Christians in, in Antioch, they were noticed by the, the, the culture, by the non-believers. They were given a label of Christian because of the way they lived. They looked at them and said, they're, they're following Jesus, so they're Christians, they're, they're followers of Jesus. It was by their lifestyle that they recognized that they were Christians. It wasn't just a title for them. It was a way of life. Is it just a title for you or is it a description of your life? For someone to tell you that they're an electrician, there's some things that you would assume that they do, right? They work with wires and put electricity and 
houses and they could put in an outlet or uh, some kind of electric box, right? That's what electricians do. If someone told you, I'm a football player, what would you assume that they do? That they play football, right? If, if someone told you I'm a football player and you, you knew them for 10 years and they never once picked up a football, would you kind of question, maybe tell them, like, Mate, you should probably stop telling people you're a football player. You have not played football in 10 years. I don't... What if, what if you told people, if someone asked you, what do you do, and you told them that you were a teacher? They would probably assume that you teach people. I'm an elementary school teacher. Oh, okay. Their next question, well, what school do you teach at? Well, I don't teach anybody. I just like the title. That would be silly. If someone told you I was a firefighter, and they were at your house, and you had a fire, you'd probably look to them to try and put the fire out, wouldn't you? What if they told you I'm a firefighter, but I don't actually put out fires? That's silly. If someone presented him or herself to you as a nurse, and someone at the table started choking, where would everybody look? To the nurse. That, that person's choking, please help them, you're a nurse. Well, I don't actually practice, I'm not really a nurse, I just like to call myself a nurse. I don't know anything about nursing. Guys, is, the title Christian can be applied the same way, right? And sometimes people do that, and that's the challenge today. Am I a Christian? Am I one who belongs to Jesus? Am I one who follows Jesus? Am I demonstrating my faith in Jesus in my life? Do people know that I'm a Christian? God is powerful enough to reach everybody. And he wants to do it. Church, are we ready to forsake our traditions? Are we ready to share the gospel? Are we ready to join a movement, an unmistakable movement of God? We're going to move now into our time of invitation. I want to invite the team up.